The Guardian. Hi, producer Madeline here. Whilst most of the Science Weekly team are taking a break, we're digging through the archive. If you didn't catch Tuesday's episode, Ian Sample explored the psychology and ethics of something that's been discussed a lot during the pandemic, the behavioural science of nudge theory. I'd really recommend listening, after this episode of course. As many of us have been enjoying, as best we can, the sweltering heat that this summer has brought, soaring temperatures have also been recorded in the Arctic. The Arctic is heating twice as fast as the global average, with temperatures there having increased by about 2 to 3 degrees Celsius since the pre-industrial period. One Siberian village, Katanga, hit 25 degrees on the 22nd of May, usually having daytime temperatures of around 0 degrees Celsius at that time of the year. Now, a new model has estimated that the Arctic could experience sea ice-free summers as soon as 2035. This troubling trend was something that Science Weekly tackled back in 2016, when Ian Sample delved into the crisis faced by Arctic sea ice, and, alongside a host of experts, explored some of the potential ramifications of the total disappearance of Arctic sea ice. Enjoy the episode. We'll be back on Tuesday next week. See you then. The area of the Arctic Ocean covered by ice will reach its annual low this month as summer in the Northern Hemisphere draws to an end. As of 30th of August, the extent of Arctic sea ice stood at 4.47 million kilometres squared, according to the US National Snow and Ice Data Centre in Colorado. It means Arctic sea ice this year is on track to fall somewhere between the second and fifth lowest since satellite measurements began in 1979. The record minimum was witnessed in 2012, a devastating year when Arctic sea ice fell to a low of 3.6 million kilometres squared. So while 2016 is unlikely to be a record year, Arctic sea ice continues to decline at a faster pace than the average of the 30 years from 1980 to 2010. But why is Arctic ice so important? How do scientists monitor its extent and predict its fate? What will happen when it finally disappears? I'm in Sample. This is Science Weekly. It's starting, Adam. I think Adam is starting. Oh wait, Jim, Jim. The big keys are starting to cast. Let me call you back. All that. Okay. Bye. Still going? Yeah. In that V section right there. Holy shit! Look at that big Joining me in the studio to unpick this complex web is David Schroeder at the Centre for Polar Observation and Modelling at Reading University, Peter Wadhams, Professor of Ocean Physics at Cambridge University, and The Guardian's own Environment Site Editor, Adam Vaughan. And down the line we have Jonathan Bamber, Professor of Physical Geography at the University of Bristol. Now we have a number of Arctic veterans with us today. Before we get into the science, I'd like you to paint a picture for our listeners of what the Arctic is actually like. And Peter, you probably have more experience there than, than most. What's it like there? 
Uh, well, it's changed enormously over the past uh, 45 years. When I first went to the Arctic in 1970, then the most of the ice in the Arctic was very rugged. It's, uh, it was, it's called multi-year ice, ice which is many years old. It's really thick. Uh, it's uh, more than three metres thick with lots and lots of pressure ridges, which are huge mountainous features uh, that stick up several metres above the surface and maybe 50 metres below. Uh, so it's extremely rugged, really difficult to walk over, very, very impressive. It feels like and looks like a solid, permanent cover. But now nearly all the ice is first-year ice. That's ice which is less than a year old, very thin, and these ridges don't exist very much. It's a different scene uh, completely. It's just not anywhere near as impressive or beautiful as it used to be in the 70s. Jonathan, you go there every year, I believe. What do you think when you turn up there? What's the site that greets you? Unlike Peter, I, most of my research is, revolves around land ice, the stuff grounded on bedrock. And this year I was in Svalbard, which is just off the northeast coast of Greenland. And I, I, I think one of my overriding impressions is it's a really beautiful environment. It's a beautiful place to be. And I always love being up there and I was there in February you would expect so that's still Arctic winter um, the, the sun's only just come up above the horizon I think oh, it's getting dark at about three o'clock uh, you'd expect it to be pretty bitterly cold that time of year it was actually slightly warmer than parts of the UK in February we had positive temperatures we had we had snow and ice melting in February in Svalbard which isn't isn't unique, but it's pretty unusual, and you know it's it's a big surprise for me when you're you're going to you know, remote Arctic island um, in winter, and it's actually quite mild. David, give us your impressions of the Arctic when you first turn up there. What's it like for yeah. you? I went there the first time in 2003 as a PhD student, and we did some flight measurements from Svalbard over the Fram Strait. And um, I was impressed how different the ice can be. So there's enormous variety of quite thin uh, pieces of ice around the ice edge and thicker ice ridges and, and how it can change it was, was unbelievable. Um, interesting, but we did some flight measurements very, very low above the sea ice surface, so around 20, 30 meters. And there were actually some polar bears that were quite frightened by our, by our plane when we went along there. It was quite an impressive sight. Peter, in your new book, A Farewell to Ice, I guess it's as much a memoir as anything else. When did your fascination with the Arctic really begin? Yes, it's, I mean, the title is meant to symbolise two things. One is that the ice is disappearing, and that's the farewell, and the other is it's a farewell from a personal point of view. I started really in 1970, and in fact, by accident, that I think the way most... There were very few people working on sea ice in 1970. In 1971, there was a international conference in Iceland on sea ice which I think was the first one ever held and about a hundred people turned up that was the entire global population of sea ice researchers so it was very very nice to be working on sea ice then because um, you had lots and lots of problems and very few people working on them uh, but it started because I, I really liked going to sea and wanted to be an oceanographer so when I got my first degree I, I was lucky enough to get a job 
on a Canadian oceanographic ship that was circumnavigating the Americas. That was the first time, That's in fact, the only time that's been done. And uh, so we started out from Nova Scotia and, and went down to the Antarctic, and that was when I first saw sea ice down in the Antarctic. We were doing some uh, measurements there of currents. And then we came up a long, long route through the Pacific uh, and uh, ended up going through the Northwest Passage to get back to where we started from. And that, working through the ice in the Northwest Passage, where we got stuck a couple of times, it was really interesting and very, very beautiful. And then I thought, this looks like an interesting part of oceanography to work on. So I did my PhD work back at the Scott Polar Institute. So it was a kind of accident, and I'd looked forward originally to uh, being an oceanographer and cruising around on in tropical seas, sunbathing on the deck and so on, but that hasn't been possible. Jonathan, can I come to you? I'm interested in why Arctic sea ice has become such a focus of attention for climate scientists. What is it about Arctic sea ice that really grabs uh, the attention for you guys? Well, uh, uh, what, one of my, well, several of my colleagues have described Arctic sea ice as the poster child of the climate change community or climate change science, because it's one of the biggest, most um, obvious signals of climate change that we have. During the satellite record, which goes back to around about 1978, we've seen a decline in Arctic sea ice that is perhaps, according to some evidence, unheralded in the last 1500 years. So it's a pretty dramatic signal and it's a pretty unequivocal signal. So, you know, if you warm the planet, you melt ice. And so it's a pretty clear response to warming that's taking place in, in the Arctic. Adam, Arctic sea ice has become a, a focus for in, environmental groups too. Why is that? Do they have different reasons? I mean, every year around this time of year when we get the, the minimum, it, it is often used, whether it's a record or not, and, uh, you know, 2012 and 2007 were particularly bad. Um, it is used as a rallying call to ar- a call to arms by environmental groups. And I think that's simply because it's very simple. It's very, you know, a lot of climate change impacts come with caveats. You know, there'll be more precipitation in some parts of the world, not in others. There'll be, uh, you know, higher crop yields, lower crop yields in different parts of the world. So often with climate change, it's quite complicated by its nature. And, it, you know, it varies around the world. And there's a lot of qualifications that come with it. And that can be quite hard for, you know, people who want to, who are trying to motivate the general public and then politicians as a result to do something about the problem. So I think the thing with climate change and Arctic sea ice is it's quite simple. You know, you change the roof of the world and, you know, you look at the satellite pictures and you look at the before and after of the long term average. And I mean, it's quite simple to understand, I think. And also the the the, uh, the polar bear is probably the one, you know, the most most overused i would say uh, you know iconic image of climate change and and and, and people care about that and then you know the, the green groups know that so that, that's why you sort of make make it an, an annual event we'll come back to that whole question of why should we care even if we should but before that david can you give us some thoughts on what we know for sure has happened to arctic sea ice in recent decades can we put numbers on the de- decline on how much it has shrunk well, we can measure the decline. So there's evidence that the minimum sea ice extent, September sea ice extent from 7, 8 million um, square kilometer in the 80s to, to values um, between 4 and 5 or even up to 3.6 in 2012. So there's evidence that it has was that happened. The more tricky question is actually why. And this is not so straightforward to answer us because there are, I mean, obviously you could say, okay, it is, it is the climate change. So it is the increase of CO2. And, but it is, uh, for this to 
answer, it is a bit more complicated. So that the measurements alone can't tell you the reasons why it has why it has shrunken. Because beside the climate change, there is also lots of variability on different timescales. So there, there is variability, like we know from, we can have a few hot days and it doesn't mean that it's climate change that we have these hot days. So there is variability on, on, on the timescale of days and there is interannual variability. So we have warmer and colder years which have nothing to do with climate change. And this has also happened, for, of course, for the sea ice, where we have variability, where the sea ice has been, for example, the two years ago, there was an increase in comparison to 2012 to the sea, um, in the sea ice extent. And there is also, as it makes it more complicated, um, variability on decadal timescales. But therefore, we have also models, and this actually helps us. And based on several studies, for example, in the model, we can can keep the CO2 level at constant value and check what kind of variability does a model uh, does, does happen in under circumstances. So from that, based on that, we can actually attribute at least 50% of the observed change to climate change. So this ice is an indicator and a proof of climate change, but not the whole amount. So there is a lot of uncertainty about this, this variability, which we have to, to, to consider as well. What are the methods that are used to measure the decline in sea ice? Are there a whole suite of different measurements that are going on that attack it from different angles? At the end of the day, it's a lump of ice and it's not like you're measuring a a subatomic particle. Maybe it should be in the lay view, maybe fairly simple to measure. Well, I mean, for the, um, the, the area is, is the easiest quantity to measure because since uh, uh, November 78, from satellite, we can actually derive the sea ice area and the, the sea ice extents, also the, the area which is mainly covered by, by sea ice uh, with some uncertainties, but relatively well. So these numbers are quite easily to measure. It is, of course, much more difficult to get the, the volume. That means you need the sea ice thickness. So, so in the, and Peter Bottoms knows this quite well. In the past, there were only some, some, some very few measurements possible from, from submarines. So, and then to, to, to derive uh, the total volume just from a pre-point measurement is quite difficult. Uh, as only recently we have a cryosat measurement. So over the last five years, we do have, at least for the winter half from November till, till April, we have, uh, have distributions over the whole Arctic from, from sea ice thickness, but with quite amount of uncertainty. Peter, are these new technologies helping put some accuracy on the measurements of the thickness and therefore the actual whole amount of Arctic sea ice at any given time you do the measurement? Uh, yes, well, if you look back, one of the problems with Arctic sea ice was that it was always possible to measure the area accurately because um, even the earliest satellites could tell you the difference between white and black in terms of the, where the ice was. But it was really the, the submarines that enabled the thickness to be determined. And this has made a, a huge difference because in both in in modelling sea ice and trying to understand what was going on, what was being seen, especially in summer, is a shrinkage of the sea ice by a few percent per decade, so that the whole ice cover is shrinking in area. But nobody was aware that that was accompanied by a much more rapid thinning of the ice until we started working from submarines. And uh, I was starting to do that work in 1971, and when we came to the more recent submarine work in, in this, uh, this century, we found that uh, the thickness was declined by more than 40%, actually about 50%. So the average thickness is 50% less, the average area is 50% less. So the volume in summer is now only about a quarter of what it was in the 1970s. So this it tells us that the, the disappearance is, is much more rapid 
than we thought originally because it's, it's disappearing from the bottom up as faster than it's disappearing from the sides inwards. Jonathan, are those thickness measurements a key part of this or is really measuring the extent enough? Well, as Peter says, um, it's, it's the volume that you really want to know about. And without measuring the thickness, you don't know what the volume changes are. I mean, it's a little bit more complicated. There are three different types of measurement you can make. You can just make a a measurement of area, which, um, as Peter says, is is relatively easy to do with satellite measurements. But you can also measure concentration. So that is, within the area, you have areas of open water called leads, and uh, you can measure the fraction of leads within the sea ice cover as well. So that gives you total concentration, and you can measure volume. And really, uh, I think... The, the, the single most important uh, parameter is volume, but uh, concentration and area give you an indication of changes as well, and they're all related. So we know where we are with Arctic sea ice as of 30th of August when we're recording this. We've got something like 4.47 million kilometres squared of Arctic sea ice. How do we then go on to predict what will happen to sea ice? I mean, David, you've worked on models, uh, particularly the Los Alamos sea ice model, which you call sea ice or CICE. What is a model like that saying about what will now happen to the ice that's there? Well, you have to distinguish what kind of model you use. So if you are talking about, about um, global climate models, where the sea ice model is one part of it. So we have the atmospheric model, the ocean model, and the land surface model, and the, and the, and the sea ice model where we, we can do these kind of models to do climate scenarios, so what will happen in the next 50 or 100 years, which are where, where a lot of these kinds of, of, of fully coupled models. And um, the IPC report you get when you can read actually how they produce, what they produce for the sea ice to happen in the next 50 or 100 years. Um, you can see if, when we take the average of all models, uh, they have a, a declining trend in, in the sea ice, and at some point the Arctic sea ice will be will be ice 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 free in summer. Um, but there is of course, and this is going to happen something between 2030 and 2050, according to the model output from the latest uh, latest IPCC report. But as I mentioned before, the, the problem is, is are two things, which is the variability, which is quite strong, and then there is of course the trend, and so both together is gives actually the real value each year. So so it might be possible that with, as, with the Arctic sea ice extent can actually be summer ice free earlier, but it's relatively unlikely it will be in the next years. But it is, of course, uh, there is some uncertainty in that. And one important thing is that we are working on is actually how can we improve these models to be more accurate and looking which processes are important, but which are missing in the models. And to, this is the main focus on our work to put in new physics into the sea ice model to, to include more uh, processes which are important for the sea ice decrease and help to be more accurate in future for uh, climate simulations. Peter, in a farewell twice, you predict that the ice may disappear completely from the Arctic in September 2016. Um, we're now in September 2016. How sure are you that that might happen? Uh, well, I don't actually predict that in the farewell twice. What I'm saying is that it will be happening very soon, much well before 20. Uh, 30. There are models that do predict that uh, the ice, the summer ice, will disappear by within the next few years, and that, uh, for instance, Maslowski's model in the, the US, uh, which takes a, a lot more account of heat in the ocean, which seems to play an important role. So, 
I, w- I would say obviously it's not likely to be ice free this summer, but it could well be in next summer or the summer after that. But certainly, I think we want to contrast the fact that it will be ice free in the in the very few years' time in September to the fact that um, many models still have it remaining until the second half of the century. So I think there's a the, there's a big disconnect between some models and the way in which the observations are showing that we're going. Peter, you've made these kinds of predictions before that the Arctic sea ice will go by about 2016, since um, certainly as far back as 2012. And there are clearly some scientists who think that's an alarmist thing to say. What do you make of that? Firstly, I've never actually said it will be in a particular year, and we shouldn't. That's irrelevant. But in 2012, you said within four years. It was likely, which would put us at 2016. And in, in your book, in the introduction to your book, you say by the time you know the book comes out, we could be you know, the North Pole could be f- free of ice this year. Yes, that well, that that's what I thought could easily be the case, and um, so I would stand by that because I was basically supporting the modelling work of um, Maslowski, which had hitherto been shown to be very accurate in terms of its predictions. I think I think the point here is that I mean, and and, and I, I have this debate with um, uh, with lay friends and colleagues all the time. Um, science, generally speaking, particularly when it comes to things like prediction, is not about binaries. It's not about uh, a yes or a no or a one or a zero. It's about probabilities. And I think if you talk to the vast majority of people that do um, numerical modelling of the climate system, they entirely acknowledge that their model simulations are not a prediction, they're a simulation, a projection, and they have a probability associated with them. Uh, Yes, but um, at the same time, um, I think you should pay attention to Feynman's dictum that if you can have the most beautiful model in the world, if it doesn't agree with the data, then it's wrong. And uh, in the case of behaviour of ice, one should go by the data, and the data are showing a strong downward trend in area, which will bring us to uh, to zero very soon. I I, I personally find it very very um, worrying when people attempt to do predictions or projections by extrapolating observations, because that's, in, in my view, a little uh, non-scientific. Uh, I mean, uh, on what basis do you extrapolate a very noisy line? The, the, the more scientifically sound approach would be to, to use a model to try and project what uh, uh, a part of the climate system is actually going to do. Peter, would you agree, though, that your views are sort of outside the mainstream for science? Uh, no, I wouldn't. I, do, I think that they're the, in terms of people who actually do measurements on ice, this, that is a mainstream view. And I'd like to raise what my book is about, if I can be allowed to do so, uh, which is that what I wanted to draw attention to in it is not the, this rapid retreat of sea ice, as such, that's that's only marginally relevant, but the implications of the retreat of sea ice for other aspects of the climate system, and I'm drawing attention in the book to uh, effects such as the fact that the larger amount of open water leads to warming in summer over the Greenland ice sheet, that accelerates Greenland ice sheet melt, which accelerates sea level rise. Also, the fact that that the warmer water around the continental shelves of the Arctic in summer 
is leading to a thawing of the offshore permafrost and we're seeing larger emissions of, of methane from the offshore each, time, each year that, that people go out there. And that could lead to a, a, a larger methane pulse coming from the Arctic, which would have climate implications. And also, the basic scientific reason why we're getting accelerated retreat is also the fact that there is a positive feedback due to the albedo change, that as the sea ice retreats, we have a lower albedo over the Arctic in the summer and a low albedo due to snow line retreat and that in itself accelerates the warming rate. So these are all global effects which are related to sea ice retreat. The, the sea ice doesn't have to disappear from the Arctic for these effects to happen. But do you get why some climate scientists are disturbed by the predictions you make? Because some of the ones in the past haven't panned out. I mean, you can you can move the date onwards to next year always, of course. You know, I'm not saying you do that, but that would be possible. But some climate scientists will say that if you make dire predictions that don't come true, that has a bad impact on the public trust in climate scientists, which isn't something anybody needs. Do you get that that is their concern? Uh, no, I think it's the opposite. And I think that the dire problem, as far as um, policymakers is concerned, is the predictions based on modelling alone that um, Arctic, that the summer sea ice will last until late in the century. If you accept that, then it makes everybody much more complacent. This is what tends to happen with IPCC results, that and less less inclined to take urgent action about the things that we can do something about which, as I really point out in the book, is that we have to take some action on the global warming rate, which, which um, involves not just reducing our carbon emissions, but actually taking action to directly remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. That's the urgent thing, and that's the entire point of my book, is to say that, that the retreat of Arctic sea ice and the feedbacks associated with that retreat, which are global, uh, show us that even... If we try to reduce carbon emissions as per the uh, Paris Agreement, we won't be able to keep global warming below two degrees. So we have to do these other things. I, I mean, I, I, I kind of um, I, I have to take real issue with part, part of what Peter said. I, 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 I think that um, making predictions or claims that, that then turn out to be unsubstantiated is actually very damaging for the credibility of the climate science community. I think it's extremely damaging. Having said that, I, I agree with him that what we should really be concerned about is that, that Arctic sea ice is declining and there will be some very serious consequences for the rest of the climate system um, as a result of that. And, you know, the exact date, I mean, I, I, I think it's unfortunate if we get too preoccupied about whether it's going to be you know, 2017 or 2025 or whatever it is, that's not really the, the most important thing that we should be discussing and, and, and concerned about. But I think it's it's really unfortunate and damaging, as I say, uh, when when people make predictions that, that turn out to be alarmist or incorrect. Can we just wrap up this, because I know we're running out of time, by getting you, and I'd like to start with you, Jonathan, to give some thoughts on why we should really care about this if we lose arctic sea ice 
it's not the end of the world. Why do we need to, or should we need to, find a way to prevent it? So um, I think we've talked about something called the ice albedo feedback. That's it's really snow albedo feedback. And and so when Arctic sea ice is removed from the Arctic Ocean, you have a a, a very dark ocean there, and the ocean absorbs a lot more solar radiation. So that's a very strong positive feedback. In other words, the Arctic is going to warm up much faster than the global average because of the decline of Arctic sea ice. And why do we care about that? Well, the the largest land ice mass, which we haven't talked about at all yet, um, in in the Northern Hemisphere, the Greenland Ice Sheet, lies um, at the edge of the Arctic Ocean. And there is a, a big area of melting around the margins of Greenland in summer already. And if you have a warming Arctic Ocean and a warming Arctic, the Greenland Ice Sheet is going to warm up further. You're going to lose more ice from that landmass, and that has consequences for sea level. That if you melted the whole of the Greenland ice sheet, you'd raise global sea level by about 7.4 meters. Now, nobody's suggesting we're going to lose the whole of the ice sheet, but the Greenland ice sheet already today is the largest single contributor to sea level rise. And so if we start to accelerate that mass loss, then, then that has pretty dire consequences at a global scale. David, any thoughts from you? I'm not sure whether maybe the um, decline of Arctic sea ice or the loss of Arctic summer sea ice is a bit overrated. I think what really matters is, of course, the land ice when it melts and the impact of, of sea rise. And for the, when the sea ice vanishes in summer, and it might be a bit early than 2030, that is possible, it will actually go in winter any t- anyway. So if you have no ice and the water is at freezing temperature and you have temperature minus 30, you go 20 centimeters of ice in one day. If you have 10 centimeters of, of ice, you, you, you go 10 centimeters a day. If you have two meters of ice, you grow one centimeter a day. So actually, if you don't have lots of ice, it grows quite quickly. And some experiments have also shown if the ice has vanished, but when of suddenly the climate would become a bit, we, we would, uh, the CO2 would decrease, the sea ice would come back. So actually the point when the summer sea ice vanishes might actually actually be not so critical. It would be much more important when, the, when there is less winter sea ice over the point when the summer sea ice vanishes. If the summer sea ice vanishes in August, there is not much solar radiation afterwards, so the impact on heating up the ocean is small. If the ice would vanish in June, it would be a different matter, because when the highest amount of solar radiation is June, July, when it would have a big impact. But actually, just a couple of, of weeks ice-free in summer might be not really the critical point in, in for the, for the global climate. Peter, we talked about how your book is partly a memoir. What will it mean for you personally when, if the Arctic sea ice goes completely? Well, already um, I was out up in the Barents Sea in, in May and the ice was very much thinner than it normally is there and it was only 30 centimetres thick. It was breaking up all the time and there was no sign of the kind of uh, heavy multi-year ice that, that we used to get. So it would be very much a matter for regret if, if, if the ice disappears. In a way, it doesn't matter because of su- in summer because it will be back again in the winter. But what comes back in the winter is much less impressive than the ice that we used to have uh, 45 years ago.
And that's all we have time for this week. Special thanks to David Schroeder, Jonathan Bamber, Peter Wadhams and Adam Vaughan. I'm Ian Sample. This is Science Weekly. The only way that you can really try to put it into scale with human references is if you imagine Manhattan. And all of a sudden, all of those buildings just start to rumble and quake and peel off and just fall over and fall over and roll around. This whole massive city just breaking apart in front of your eyes. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.